Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. So today's guest needs no introduction. Scott Phillips is the Motley Fool's Chief Investment Officer. He is by far our most popular guest. And many of you have listened to his podcasts and recordings with us, but also the ones he does in person. He's joining us today for a sort of New Year's special edition to help you start the year off right. Scott, thanks so much for joining me. Gemma, g'day. Thank you for having me. It's uh, great to be back. It's, uh, it's much fun, this one. I'm really looking forward to it because we had a conversation while we were preparing, which is, you know, look at us preparing. Uh, <laughs> talking about, let's go with, you know, five high conviction stocks. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go high conviction. We want the stuff that you really want to seriously think about having in your portfolio. Very cool. But you've thrown in a couple of bonuses. So tell me about the uh, a lot <laughs> So we talked about five high conviction stocks, which I love, and we'll talk about them from uh, for 2022 and beyond. So uh, the first thing I'll probably will say, and we might go back to this, but um, this is not a 12-month price target sort of idea, right? We're, we're not short-term investors or even 12-month investors, whatever, whether that's long or short-term. For you as you're listening to this, uh, we are long-term investors. We're looking three to five years out. So that's the first thing I will say. But also, to have five high conviction, I was like, well, five, like I'm happy to give five. It's a great idea, but it's not quite enough in the sense that I wouldn't ever say or rarely say go and buy just these five stocks, right? Five high conviction companies, let's assume some of them go really well, some go poorly, and some are in between. It's not how you want to build a portfolio. So I suggested to you that we have a couple of bonus stocks. So we've offered five. We're giving seven, the full work week. Um, And I wanted to throw a couple of really great businesses that hopefully are no surprise to any of your listeners, um, but businesses that I think really are fantastic bedrock stocks for any portfolio. So we're going to go high conviction. But, you know, when you said high conviction, I thought, well, the highest conviction are kind of the most boring ones, right? Because highest conviction can be the ones you're certain are not going to lose money or you can be certain, but you know what I mean? The ones that are really unlikely to lose money, the ones that are going to be great offerings. You don't just want that stuff. So we thought we'd do both. Um, let's start with the first one, which is on the ASX, Washington H. Sol Pattinson. The code is SOL. Um, this is a listed investment company of a different stripe. It's not just a passive investor or even an active investor like some of the old school LICs. This is, as most of your listeners probably know, um, originally a pharmacy, uh, then a kind of investment company come operating business. They they own property trust. They own funds management businesses. They own their own in-house corporate team, for example, lawyer, Pitt Street, uh, Pitt Capital Partners. Um, but they also have a passive equity portfolio. They simply manage as a, as a separate portfolio. And they have large and sometimes controlling stakes in other businesses. And we're thinking here about New Hope Coal, uh, TPG. Uh, Brickworks, of course, it has a cross shareholding with and, and others besides API at the moment. Um, that looks like they may, may be taken over by Woolies or West Farmers, depending on who wins that race. But these guys are the fourth generation of the family, the second longest or oldest company on the ASX. Um, one of those really great bedrock businesses. And by the way, if that sounds boring, I don't blame you for thinking that. It has outperformed the market based on the last numbers I saw over one, three, five, ten. And 15 years. So it's tempting to think old school, boring, you know, fourth generation conglomerate, who wants that anymore? Uh, the answer has been in the past, at least, people who wanted to beat the market. So that's that's really important. I'll go to my second one, mate, and I'll let you uh, get a word in. Um, the, the second one is Berkshire Hathaway. Again, I know we all know Berkshire Hathaway. We know Warren Buffett. We get all that stuff. Um, but if we can talk about high conviction, if I had to pick two companies that I, that I could sleep at night within my portfolio, that I could go 
you know, you know, the deepest, darkest jungles of the Amazon rainforest for 10 years and then come back. Um, these are two I'd happily put in my portfolio for that time period, and they do make great bedrock positions. Berkshire Hathaway, run by Warren Buffett, he's been there 55 years. It is, again, um, the similar kind of business to Salt Pats, funnily enough, and that's why I like them both. They're diversified internally as well as just being great businesses. So Berkshire, as many people know, have a, a whole host of wholly owned businesses. That's the bulk of their of their operation. They have insurance companies, they have trading businesses, they've got all sorts of stuff inside Berkshire Hathaway. The famous Seas Candies, if you've been to the west coast of the US, you'll know Seas Candies, they are very good. Um, but also, uh, you know, a, a decent share portfolio there, Apple Shares, Coke, MX, uh, among plenty of others. I should say I own both of these companies, uh, Solpats and Berkshire. Um, again, you know, Buffett will not be there at some point, whether whether for natural causes or, or he chooses to leave the business, someone will take over. And yes, the share price might even be volatile when it happens. But Berkshire is, is you know, Buffett is a great asset. But when he leaves the scene one way or the other, the business is going to retain all those shareholdings, all those operating businesses. Um, that is the beauty of the conglomerate structure he's created. It will outlive him. And again, if you said to me, two companies, 10 years, can't touch them, they'll be the first two on my list. So they form the base of our five stock, now seven stock, high conviction portfolio as we enter 2022. Oh, I love that. I mean, I was going to say the sleep at night factor is so strong there, you might fall asleep out of boredom. (laughs) (laughs) We love them anyway. We love them. On the Washington H. Soul Pats thing, this Mm. is in no way relevant to what you're discussing, but to give you (laughs) an idea of just of the longevity of that company from a pharmaceutical perspective, when we renovated our house, which we thought was built in 1900, but it may have been the 1880s, and they pulled up the floor. There were two beautiful bottles under there that clearly some builder had chucked under the house 120 (laughs) years ago, maybe 140 years ago, and one of them was uh, Soul Pat's. Oh, that is cool. I love that. And so that. it's got the brand down the side. I think it's sorry, I think it's Washington Soul. And you can kind of time exactly when it would have been made by what stage of corporate structure it was in at that point, because <laughs> there were many takeovers in the late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds with Washington H. So if you are feeling like you're uh, wanting something with a hell of a lot of history and longevity, go for the one where you can chuck a bottle under your house for 120 years and um, and it'll still be around. You know what? That might be a fun next podcast, you know. We try and try and imagine ourselves 140 years from today and, and wonder which bottles people will be taking out front of their houses. That, that's a, it's a fun exercise in itself, but not related at all to what we're talking about today. We can only say it in the context of Perhaps, uh, perhaps it's about longevity, right? It's about totally, being totally around when everything changes. Pharmacies, apparently, they last a long time, long, long time. Uh, I love those and I like the fact that you've spoken to uh, Warren's longevity because as brilliant as he is, I don't think he can live forever. Could be wrong. Seems unlike. If anyone could, it should be him. But yeah. Right. <laughs> well, he eats absolute rubbish from what I can gather. Doesn't he talk about having a hot dog every day? Oh, um, yeah. Ham- hamburger and Coke, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't seem to have done him any harm at all. He certainly outlived the average American. Uh, but, you know, that is something for investors to keep in mind. And I was going to say to you, like, having moved beyond the dead set sleep at night, maybe fall asleep out of boring stocks that <laughs> everyone should think about having in their portfolio at some point. Maybe they'll be around in 120 years. <laughs> We've had a really, really rough couple of years broadly, right? Businesses, 
anyone who's a migrant and has family or loved ones overseas, if you've got kids who are school age, that's been fun. Uh, if you're in Sydney or particularly Victoria, poor Melbourneites, what a shocker. Uh, you know, anyone who's vulnerable health-wise, if you live on your own, if you live with people you don't like. There have been a lot of reasons why it's been a long couple of years, right? It's been pretty challenging. Anyone who works in healthcare, my God. So, really tough, but the group of people who've had an absolutely delightful couple of years are investors. It's been amazing how well investors have done over the last at least 18 months really since the market bounced back. And, you know, we we have investors who've done so well, their greatest fear is sort of undoing their brilliance, not, <laughs> you know, like that, that's the biggest yeah. fear is like yeah. how do, yeah, I, totally. yeah, yeah, how do I not blow it now after I've done so well? So going into 2022, what are the key things you think before we get into the what you should buy, which is what everyone wants, what is, what is the stuff that you really think people should keep in mind after the couple of years we've had? Oh, man, that's such a great question, Gemma, and I, I could talk for 40 minutes, but I won't. Um, the first thing is, as you were talking, I pulled up a, a chart of the uh, ASX 200 over the last five years, just, just, for, just for pure context. And it's worth remembering that even if you've only bought all your shares on the very peak of the market pre-COVID, you've still made money. So, you know, a, a lot of people want to compare the peak of this to the peak of that and say, well, the shares got nowhere since this last peak. And that's that can be true, right? And it's not up a lot. It's up by, I don't know, 100 and almost, two, almost 200 points. So, you know, 3%, something like that, um, which is not spectacular right in months, two years. So I'm not, and that's, by the way, excluding dividends. So it's probably close to 6 or 7%, including dividends, um, which is pretty good, by the way. Um, not great. Not, not, not market average, but not terrible. And that's if you only put every single dollar in the market at that point. Most of us, hopefully, and hopefully, um, all of your listeners, if not, but at least most, um, will be adding money regularly to the market, whether it's new money being saved, whether it's dividends being reinvested, whatever it is. So while we look at the top and say we've gone, we're up 3% from the peak, unless you were the, and excuse the language, the unluckiest bastard in the world who happened to invest all of his or her money on exactly that type, that day, everybody else bought shares at a cheaper price. And so if you think about that, the shares you bought before the peak, the shares you bought since the peak, the shares you bought in the 18 months and in the next 18 months and the next 18 years, hopefully, um, you will be dollar cost averaging into the market. And so while it's tempting to look only at those gains, and I'm not, uh, so, you know, from peak to now um, and say, well, it hasn't been much, you're absolutely right, except uh, that's not the point. <laughs> the point is, you know, when you've invested that money in the months and years before that, in the months and years after that, you've made a very, very significant amount of money. So that, that's the first thing is don't be fooled by that whole idea of like the since the last peak language. Second thing I'd say is do yourself a favor and grab the, grab it, just open open your browser and pull up the ASX 200 over the last five years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever it is. And what you'll notice is you go from one to three to five to 10 to max, probably maximum on, on whatever uh, website you're using. You'll see that a lot of the stuff that look really, really volatile in the one year goes away slowly over three, then even more slowly over five, then eventually you can't see it when you go to that max chart. And, and the reminder there is that volatility is ever present. And if you've done really well in the last eight months, I've had some, some of our, our podcast listeners who've said, oh, I've done really well. I started investing in March 2020. I'm like, oh, man, like, you know, so talk about, talk about luck. Um, if the unluckiest guy or girl in the world was supposed to have invested in, on the 19th of February um, of 2020, if you had invested three uh, months later, two months later, three months later, all you've seen is just the amazing power of compounding from a from a rebound from a crash, and remember that that's not also the the, the usual uh, way of things. There is going to be volatility. There will be entire years, maybe even two years straight, when you lose money, 
And that sucks. But that's the price of admission, right? That's the price of the years when you have 20, 30, 40% returns. That's the price of a long-term compounding uh, Vanguard do a yearly chart, which you know I love, Gemma. Over the last 30 years, the average gain of the market was 9.6% per annum, despite the GFC, despite the COVID crash, which was even in that data. Um, and yet the market still did 9.6% per annum, which if you're not super excited about that, let me put that in dollars. That turned $10,000 in, in 1991 into $160,000 30 years later. That's a 16-time return in 30 years. Now, we should always say the future is not necessarily like the past, but that track record is about average for as many decades as you want to go back. And so the reality is that you're going to have to live through the volatility. You're going to have to live through this rain to get some sunshine, Gemma. I'm sure other people, Hallmark card riders could put it better than I could, uh, speaking of the festive season. But um, the reality is volatility is always going to be with us. You've got to play the long game. You've got to be in it for the long term. Uh, and just remember, if you've had some really good wins recently, congratulations. Uh, I, I hate to break it to you, but here's the tough love bit. It wasn't you. It was them. It was the market, right? When someone said, oh, it's not me, it's you, they meant it. In this case, it is you. It is not you. It's me. It's the market. Uh, the market is is has been great and fantastic and good on you for investing, good on you for staying through it, good on you for putting some money to work and getting those gains. As you say, Gemma, there is no way to save yourself from future volatility. You can just prepare for it, be prepared to live through it, and be confident in what is my belief that the long term will be an attractive result, just as the past has been, if you give it time to do its thing. I love all of that. And I think when we were speaking last, I was saying freakishly, and it was absolutely freakishly, I picked the absolute <laughs> low of the market. I also <laughs> reckon I picked the peak of the market. Like <laughs> you, if you've been doing this for any period of time, more than the last 18 months, You've done some incredibly stupid things along with some incredibly brilliant <laughs> things. It's, you know, and I think perhaps it's just incredibly challenging for anyone who started recently to accept that you're going to have some losses because they haven't had any yet. You know, they've done so well. And I mean, amazing, right? Hats off to every person who had the courage to put their money on the line last year. I think it's amazing and I'm thrilled about it, right? So I'm absolutely not mocking you at all. That is amazing. Well done. Just, you know, you're going to have some losses sometime. It's going to suck and you feel like an idiot. Um, and you haven't had that yet, whereas you know, <laughs> for the come. rest of us, we've had it lots of times. <laughs> so don't think I'm a genius. Um, you just, you know, timing timing matters. But uh, the time in the market, as we say, it's boring, but it's true. Uh, Got to be in there for a while. So let's talk about, let's say you're here now, right? And you may have been the luckiest bastard in the world last year some courage, some luck, uh, or you may not have invested yet, right? And now is your first foray into markets. And now you're doubly fearful because you know the market's been on a on a stellar run, right? So terrifying time to start because you don't want to be the idiot who loses everything. <laughs> what are you thinking? So it goes both ways, Gemma. Um, and this is this humans aren't designed to invest. Like that's the, the reality is, we have to combat every part of our evolutionary DNA that says, "When the lion roars, run like hell. Don't stop around and wait and see." And and we extrapolate, right? We, we've learned if you had to, if you had to consciously make every single decision on, on your in your day, from the minute you woke up to the minute you went to bed, you could you would you would be mentally and physically exhausted. So we rely on these heuristics. We rely on these. Rules of thumb. We rely on the experience. We kind of extrapolate that and say, well, okay, well, I know my toothbrush is probably in the top drawer. 
and I brush my teeth with my left hand, this is what I do. And, you know, you don't have to think about it. You kind of get used to it. Your muscle memory takes over, all that kind of good stuff. Investing is is almost entirely the reverse of that. And, and the point I'm, I wanted to make was when you mentioned, you know, people are fearful of buying now because, gee, what if this is the top? People are fearful of buying during COVID on the way down because, hey, what if this keeps going? And so there is always something to be fearful of if you look hard enough. And normally you don't have to even look very hard. You will find a, a, a reason that it'll be the China crash. It'll be inflation as we are going through right now. It'll be high rising interest rates. It'll be the next election. It'll be, you can, there's a million reasons you can not invest. And there's something to be scared of. When the market's going up, oh, I've missed my chance. When the market's going down, oh, what if it gets worse? Um, it, it's, it just is human nature. And so the first thing I'd say is you kind of need to, back to the volatility thing, you just need to realize the game that you're playing. I don't mean game in a in a in a abstract sense. I mean, mean literally just investing is going to be like this. This is what you're going to be going through. And if you are, and I hope if you haven't started investing yet, then congratulations. Hopefully you're young. Hopefully you're getting into it with many, many decades of compounding ahead of you. But even if you're not, um, hopefully you've got a couple of decades ahead of you, because if you even if you're retiring tomorrow, you'll probably live for another 20 years, right? So this this is a long-term game. And you will have good years and you will have bad years. There'll be good stocks and bad stocks. Um, volatility will be here, and there'll always be a reason to be fearful. There'll always be something to worry about, uh, and that's just that's just life. But also, I hope you're going to be adding money to your portfolio every day, week, month, whatever whatever sequence makes sense to you. Probably not daily, whatever sequence makes sense to you in terms of when you're saving or when you're putting money into the market. Maybe it's every three months. Maybe it's every six months. Um, the market will be different stages during that, and that's just the reality of it. If you let yourself be paralyzed by the what ifs, you'll never do it. And again, that Vanguard chart or just the ASX 200 of any length of time. Yes, in hindsight, there were better and worse times to invest, but at the time, I guarantee nobody knew that. And you had to, you had to, I'll say trust again. I, I'm not allowed to, and we shouldn't be absolute about these things. Um, but if the past tells us anything, it's that despite the volatility, the the system of democratic capitalism that we live in tends to find ways of making more money. It solves more problems. It creates new products. It it meets new needs or existing needs. It meets them better than the last thing. Uh, that that process tends to create meaningful amounts of wealth. It has for cent- literally centuries. Uh, and so, you know, the, the weight of history is really, really strong. I've said many times before, probably on this podcast, that, you know, we speak about Warren Buffett. He was born in 1930. Uh, he lived through and invested through. Second World War, the Vietnam War, the Korean War, the stagflation concerns, the Cuban Missile Crisis, a couple of Iraq wars, hyperinflation, the nifty 50 during the 70s when the market went nowhere. Um, he was brought into the Great Depression. Uh, you know, these things are, are ever present. And by the way, the market has done spectacularly well over that 90 years that he's been alive. And that's kind of the point, right? It, it, it tends to rise and it has always risen over time, not, not every day, not every week, not every year. But it tends to rise despite those fears, despite those concerns, despite those worries. So I don't know where the market's at. I don't know when the next crash is coming. I can't tell you any of those things, and I don't really think anyone else can either. Um, other, other experts you have on may disagree with me, and that's fine because that's uh, the good thing about the podcast. You can listen to everyone talk about everything, and you can make your own decisions. But generally speaking, uh, from my perspective, your best bet is to find great companies at reasonable prices. Let the companies compound your wealth for you by doing really good things really well. If they do that, that's that's the best way to approach it. But you have to, you, you got to make a deal with yourself, right? Know this will be tough. Know you will lose money sometimes. Know some stocks will suck. I'm going to give you five stocks. There is a very, very high probability that one of those stocks will suck over the next five years. Now, if I knew which one, I wouldn't recommend it. But that's the, that's the point, right? That's exactly the problem that we're dealing with. You, you have that issue of, hey, 
I don't know what comes next. Um, that's why we have diversified portfolios. That's why we invest for the long term. That's why we dollar cost average because we're doing those things that can at least give us a chance of benefiting, maximizing the benefit from uh, the volatility that we have. Sometimes you buy stocks when they're cheap. Sometimes you buy them when they're more expensive. That's just the way things go. But if you look back at Woolies or CSL or Commonwealth Bank or um, Fortescue or you know pick your company, the successful ones after pay since listing, uh, the, the best businesses find ways of being better than the competition and that will grow your wealth. And you know what? If you overpaid for Woolies and you paid $3 rather than $2, at 35 bucks, you probably really don't care. Yes, we'd all like it cheaper, but the bigger, the, bigger, the bigger question wasn't did I pay too much? It was did I buy the right company? Did I hold it for long enough? Did I let time do its thing? I love all of that and I think it's super helpful for people who are about to get started because clearly every time is a terrifying time to start but if you feel like you've missed the run then it's really depressing Uh, and I'm going to keep coming back to Washington H. I've kind of got it in my mind now but I keep going whatever whatever was in that bottle under my house <laughs> is almost definitely not a legitimate pharmaceutical treatment anymore. <laughs> it could have been anything, couldn't it? <laughs> it could have been anything, yeah. They used to sell, you know, if you read the stories about Listerine and what it was originally used for, like they used it as a hair treatment and they used it, yeah, they used it for all sorts of things and then eventually went, you know what, this is not bad as a uh, as a mouthwash. And there's a lot of examples like that from pharmacy pharmaceuticals. There's also... God, this is completely left of centre. There's a book called Blitz if you want to read something kind of extraordinary about how the big German pharmaceutical manufacturers started in drugs, very clearly illicit drugs now. They were not All illicit right. back then and um, and then sold them to the Nazis. Anyway, that is not super relevant to this conversation except to the extent that you go the reason that the market continues to grow is we keep coming up with better and cooler stuff and better ways of living our lives and people are happy to pay for that and companies that adapt and keep offering us cooler and better stuff or ways of doing things are those that are going to do well, which is a lovely segue into those five companies you've been thinking about mm-hmm. that might well help us, you know, <laughs> live better and more interesting lives and, you know, get chucked under the house. I will do my level best, Gemma. I'll do my level best. <laughs> what have you got for us? All right, let's kick off with a business that I've been reasonably late. So I'm going to tell you, by the way, all these five companies I own personally. So I'm going to, I, I eat my own cooking where I can, 95 plus in my portfolio. I can't I've recommended to our members, um, which is not an ad, by the way, just to let you know that this is coming from a place of not just, hey, here's what you should do, but here's what I've been doing. Uh, and here's what I think you should keep doing. Uh, but also you need to know that I own the shares. So if I'm talking them up, then uh, you need to make your own judgment as to whether this is reasonable or not, whether I'm just talking my own book, or whether I'm genuinely giving you good ideas. Uh, I bought Adore Beauty, A-B-Y, relatively recently. Uh, and it's a business that sells beauty products and skincare predominantly online. And it's one of those companies that I originally had presumed that I would be, that they would, would struggle to have their own business. And if there's a lesson here, it's just because I don't think it should be a thing doesn't mean it's not a thing, right? We, we all judge life and companies by our own perspective. I had a mate who would never buy Carlton United Brewery shares because he hated VB. And I don't love VB either. But unless you remember that other people do things differently to yourself, it's very, very hard to find great investments. Unless you're absolutely the average Australian in all shapes and forms, you're not going to find the, the, the best 
that are out there. So I'm thinking, okay, skincare, beauty products, well, you want to try them on, right? You want to see what they feel like, look like. Now, clearly, I'm not a massive beauty consumer, Gemma, as you well know. But, uh, but you know, and I thought, well, that can't be really a thing. And then you look at the numbers and you see that Australians are continuing in ever greater numbers to order ever great, greater numbers of products from Adore Beauty. They have done a really fantastic job in providing a great website, a really good community, a really fantastic customer service experience, including the, the fabled Tim Tam in every order, uh, which is always nice. So, you know, there's a, there's a benefit of opening the pack there. Um, but it's a, it's a company that's been, just been growing from strength to strength. Kate Morris was the founder and former CEO. She spent 20 years, the usual 20-year overnight success, building this business, reasonably recently listed a couple of years ago. Um, but a, a company's just been able to, you know, it's one of those things when you find a really rich vein of opportunity and you just mine it and mine it and mine it, to mix my metaphors, um, it's it's a fantastic opportunity. So Adore Beauty is just taking market share in a really, really big market, by the way. It's nowhere near significantly sized compared to its offline competitors and some of its online competitors. Um, but it's doing a really great job of of creating fantastic relationships with its customers, um, the community they've created. They've got podcasts. They've got social media presences, the whole thing. It's a bit of a force of nature. Um, again, not something I use personally, but uh, it's clearly doing something very, very right. And just because I don't use the product, I mean, you know, I may, but I don't. Uh, I can see what's going on, how they're being successful. And if you think about the move online, yeah, we had a COVID year last year, arguably, um, both in 2020 and 2021, by the way. Um, and so, you know, you've, you've got a couple of years of probably elevated sales growth because there was not much other option for large swathes of time. But are those people really going to stop shopping at Adore Beauty? Are they going to really not come back? And then are more people not going to say, well, I tried shopping online during COVID. I might go and see if I can find beauty products. Although that's their friends and family. So I think Adore Beauty is really well positioned. Still a small business, uh, really well positioned to continue to grow. I think grow for many, many, many years to come at probably elevated compound rates. And that's a really attractive proposition generally. If you can find a business that's growing its revenues at really significant long-term compound rates, uh, you've, they've got to try really, really hard to screw that up. And I don't think they will. I think it'll be a, a good buy for a long time to come. Oh, I love this example. And I will say this because so many of the examples uh, that people give of stocks, the very few that are very female focused um, and that any analysts really understand because mostly <laughs> I talk to guys, I talk to blokes, right? And that's yeah, sort of so where true, the market man. is it's focused. So By yep. market, I mean share market. Yeah. And I think... It's very difficult and the reason I'm saying is as I recently spoke to Eleanor Swanson from mm. Firetrail mm. and she mm. gave a different example in the beauty industry okay. uh, which is uh, I want to say Silk Laser Clinics yes. and the reason she gave that example, she was like, there's a real perception in the market that it is that there was a real bring forward effects because of lockdown, exactly what you're saying about the door mm. beauty. Mm. Um People rushed out, got a whole lot of treatments done immediately after lockdown and won't come back. Right. And she and I both were like, ha, are you kidding? Like <laughs> once you're in that market, you are in. Yes, and, this is, yes, and so yes. we came up with, after the podcast finished recording, this idea of beauty as a service. You can sell SaaS, beauty as a service, <laughs> as an ongoing commitment. It is subscription-based, yeah. whether they call it that or not, yeah, yeah. because the likelihood of someone who – uses certain types of products yep. uh, and particularly certain types of services because she was talking about injectables and laser treatment and so on, it doesn't stop. And, <laughs> and, and women kind of see other women go, yeah, yeah, like this is how it works, right? Blokes have no concept of this, I don't think. <laughs> um, so we had this hilarious conversation about it going, yeah, this is going to be one that will come as a shock to about 80% of my listeners, I think, and they'll be going, no. And I'll be like, yes, it's true. Uh, and you mentioned Adore Beauty. They, um, you know, there are two 
major premium brands for buying cosmetics and skincare, but one's not listed. Um, and they are the one that is listed. And if you engage with the social chatter around these two, and there is, there's enormous social chatter among their audience. And it's not just consumer base, it's also an audience. They consume the content that they provide. It's such an engaged uh, audience of people who, who participate in the beauty field. You've got no idea there's like 7,000 beauty podcasts out there. I'm like, surely this is a visual medium, but no, they will talk about it. It's, like, it's, it's super fascinating. So I, yeah, I love this point, example. So. I think it's so interesting. And I suspect that as you say, there'll be a lot of analysts and consumers as well who don't believe the story mm-hmm. uh, until they go and look at the numbers. So if you are a guy and you don't believe the story, either have a chat to your wife or girlfriend, Yes, yeah. get on social media or go and look at the numbers. Any of those options will give you a way of engaging with a, um, a universe that you might not otherwise participate in. I find it fascinating. It's it's really important, mate, because it's, um yes, I, I, I've been guilty of this, right? It, it couldn't possibly be true because I don't, well, I wouldn't use it. It's like, well, turns out I'm not the average person. Very few of us are the average person. Even if you are, you can't be both the average male and female. You can't be the average young and old person. There, there are very different dynamics that play, different products, different experiences. And it's kind of like the data doesn't lie. I mean, it's possible for fads to happen, right? We all know of businesses or, or, or products that have sold well for a while and then gone away. So you've got to be careful of that just because there are sales there, just because there's sales growth there. Um, what I won't talk about this time, but I'll mention very briefly, is Premier Investments that owns the Smiggle brand. If you don't have, if you have a tween in your life, you know how much money gets sucked through the Smiggle vortex every single year. If you're not a parent of a tween, you might maybe recognize the brand kind of because you've maybe seen it in a shopping center. Um, but, you know, it, when you actually have a sense of what actually goes on in that place, um, the amount of money they, they absolutely rake in every month, week, year, uh, it, it is phenomenal. And again, same thing, right? Just because you're not in the market doesn't mean the market doesn't exist and can't be, uh, can't be attractive. It, it makes research a little bit harder because you can't say, oh, yeah, I tried that beer down the pub. It's really good. I'll buy the shares. If you're, if you're a bloke or, or vice versa, right? If you're a, if you're a girl and you'll, you know about Door Beauty, you may not know about this particular brewer if you don't drink beer or I know they're horribly stereotyped examples, but you get what I'm saying. It's worth just thinking about uh, just just other people's experiences, and, and there are real categories just because you don't uh, don't partake in them. I love that. Yeah, Smiggle's such a good example. <laughs> I'm in the space of tweens, and so I, um, <laughs> God knows, we've put some money into Smiggle. And the one that for, for me that was a nasty shock was uh, was F1, like Formula One. My husband's into Formula One, and when I first met him, and he would be, you know, his eyes hanging out of his head because he hadn't slept. You know, between midnight and 4 a.m. because the race got stopped by rain or something. I remember being like, it's like there's literally cars going around in a circle. <laughs> That's all it is. And like someone might win or lose the race because they popped a tyre. Like what a stupid sport. Like how is this a sport? I've never heard of anything so ridiculous. Anyway, now I really like Formula One and I've watched all the stupid programs on Netflix and everything else, but it was a great example of something that is outside your sphere and looks insane to a <laughs> uh, to a bystander, but once you're in it, it suddenly makes sense. So tell me what else. Is it going to be another left field one? Uh, this one's, well, left field in the sense that it's a company that everyone hates right now. And it's going to be I own shares and have for quite a while. It's Kogan. KGN is the code. It has been a whipping boy since the very, very day that the COVID vaccine was approved in the US back in November of 2020. And ever since then, people went, oh, 
Oh, no, we thought you'd come with, and this, this is the weird thing, right? So think about share markets, and the market is weird. Uh, quick tangent before I get back to Kogan. Uh, the the Friday uh, afternoon, shares were about 28 bucks, something like that. The COVID, the vaccine was announced as being approved on the Sunday. The shares fell 30% the following week. Now, I don't know anybody who thought we will never go back to the shops or they'll never find a solution or get vaccine for COVID or we won't find a way to live with this thing. For 30% of the value of a company to be wiped off based on announcement that we all kind of expected was coming anyway or we'd find a way to live with COVID one way or the other, um, I just thought it was extraordinary. The the, the seeming uh, unquestioned faith on the Friday and then by the following Friday when the shares have fallen by a third, uh, the seeming sense of, oh, no, no, online's over. It just really reminds you that the market kind of is can be really, really binary sometimes. And I think the maybe they were overpriced to start with, maybe they're too cheap at the end of the week, maybe both are true. But the, the sheer fall, to, to imagine that 30% of COVID, and remember the value of a share is the, the sum total of all of its future cash flows, right? I won't get in the algebra because no one wants that in the podcast. Uh, <laughs> you're a beauty side in the podcast, try explaining algebra. Um, you, you kind of work through that. So, well, hang on, is it really likely that on Friday, the full value of all of Kogan's future earnings, yes, discounted for time, were 30% higher than the following Friday? Um, it's it, it biggest belief. So it, volatility happens. Since then, the shares have been almost on a continual downward slide from 28 through to 20 now at I don't know, recently, eight odd dollars, nine dollars, something like that. Um, by the way, I don't ch- check share prices daily. For someone who does this for a job, um, I have no idea what the COVID share price is, even on date of recording, let alone whatever time this comes out. So um, I don't really care that much because I'm looking for good businesses holding for the long term. But it's been a, it's been a whipping boy for every possible concern or worry, uh, management concerns, profitability concerns, online commerce concerns, all that stuff. Here's the thing, though, but despite all of that, and a little bit like a door, um, this might not be e-commerce stocks, by the way, um, a little bit like a door, um, Kogan's been growing top-line sales at 20 30% per annum for years and years. And the challenge for Kogan, well, the challenge for shareholders right now is even at the current share price, if it can keep growing those sales at even a moderately similar rate for a small to medium amount of time, these shares, in my view, are cheap. If it's possible that Kogan never finds a way to make money out of this and they end up with what they call profitless prosperity. Maybe they sell billions of dollars of products and never make a dollar in profit. That's possible, right? It's very, very unlikely. So if you can keep growing at 20, 25, 30% per year, and, and if you don't think it's possible, Amazon's done that for 25 years straight. So, you know, unless they unless that stops in a hurry and when profit normalizes, they had a had a big Again, it's, I won't get the arcane accounting, but they had a, a, some, some big co- one-off costs in the last set of results that makes profit look worse than it otherwise might have. So you normalize for that. Then you extrapolate out a few years. And say, well, hang on, if it grows at 20% a year for the next five, six, seven years, and profitability can rise to four, five, seven, eight percent of, of sales, you've only got to do the math to see how de- tremendously cheap Kogan is right now. So again, those things aren't absolute and they're not guaranteed. There are a range of outcomes, in which case Kogan goes broke because it never makes a profit or you know, sales fall 5% this year and never grow again. Uh, of course, there are those possible outcomes, but it's really, really unlikely. If you see a business with that sort of sales momentum, it's very unlikely. It'll stop anytime soon. If it does, it'll slowly decline, uh, which you've got plenty of notice for. And even if it does, it goes from 25 to 23 to 19 to 15 to 16 to 12 over extended periods of time. Um, the compound value of that sales growth is just still phenomenal. So I I really, and I've looked really hard for the bear case on Kogan, other than a bit of a, uh, we don't like Rosalind Kogan selling shares or we think management's paid too much or gee, they, they wasted some money on warehousing last year. I can't see a really strong case for the end of that growth. 
And if they can continue to grow, I think this is a really, really cheap stock. And again, I own shares, as I will for all of the companies I talk about today. But um, I, I just, I don't, I don't understand the market's pessimism at all. I think this is likely to be a, a very decent winner over the long term. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. I'm just going back to Adore Beauty because I feel mm. like I need to put in <laughs> snippets for people who don't know anything about this. So one of the concerns with Kogan is the inventory overhang. They've got yes. too much stuff that they can't yeah. sell at the moment. Yeah. Um, but given that they're somewhat in the discount end of the market mm-hmm. uh, and they can sell things at a discount, the, <laughs> what many people may not be aware of with Adore is premium beauty does not discount. Yeah. They yeah. just don't. Uh, so they might give you a few extra little freebie bits and bobs, but they don't discount. That's not a thing in beauty. So your margins are insane compared to other other types of product. Mm. Um, if they ever had an inventory overhang, that would be a bit of a challenge for them because they don't discount. <laughs> then, then you'd be the only one in the market. So even though, you know, you might go to the supermarket and see, you know, 50% off stickers all over Revlon and Maybelline and all that kind of business, if you even look at that as you walk past it in the aisle, you will never, ever see that in premium beauty, which is what Adore Beauty sells. Mm-hmm. Uh, different for COVID. Very different. Yes, exactly. Very different. Can, yeah, that's mm. right. That's right. And COVID lives in the – you know, it, it's it's the it's the big W and Kmart of online retail. It, it is literally the whole. You know, go and grab a bargain. It looks cheap. It is cheap. Buy it. Uh, I have, I think, two Kogan TVs and a Kogan heater, um, okay. and they're they're perfectly fine, right? I, I could pay I could have paid two thousand dollars for a Sony TV. I paid six hundred bucks for a Kogan one instead. Um, it's perfectly fine. If I see them side by side, you know what? The Sony one actually looks better because it's newer technology, and that's fine. And people will still buy this. If you're if you're again, this is one of those things about. You know, some people will say, "I'd never buy something for Kogan." It's like that's okay. But they have three million Australians on their database and sales are going at 30%. So, you know, just because you won't do it. And, you know, I don't mind blame people saying, look, I just don't understand it. I won't buy it because I just simply, simply can't understand it. We'll never understand it. It's like, fine. If it's not for you, then give it a miss. I, I'm not saying people should buy each and every one of these companies necessarily. But just because you're not that customer, there is a customer out there. They love the hell out of Kogan. They are spending even more money every year. Three million of us are signed to their database. If you're not one of those three million, that's completely fine. But plenty of other people are. They're happily spending money with Kogan. They're happily going back. Um, so I've seen people say, "Oh, I didn't, I, I didn't have a good customer service experience with Kogan, so it's, it's a dud stock." Like, well, that's that's okay. But if if three million of us are, <laughs> are spending more money than last year, then you may not be the average consumer, and that may not be the best basis for making that decision, like the Adore example we used before. Your point about customer service is a really interesting one because you would probably wipe out every consumer-facing stock in the top 20. Yeah. If you use that, I was just going, Telstra, the banks. Right, oh, no, exactly. no, wait, yes. wait a second, yeah, you would yeah, never yeah. use any of them at all. You, know, you yeah. wouldn't buy them if that was your – if you had one negative experience with that company. Correct. correct. And also I have never bought anything using Afterpay. <laughs> Obviously, I'm alone. I'm the only person that's in Australia. Right. You but and still, I know two people. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. But, it, you know, it's worth noting that your, mm. your lack of attraction to the product does not mean yeah. that it doesn't – sort of very much appeal to someone else. So tell me, how, we're, we're in the retail side of things at the moment. Where are you looking next? I'm going very different, Gemma. Uh, my third one is, is a cheat. It's not a stock. It's a an ETF. And it's the NASDAQ 100 ETF that I know is popular among your uh, traders, your investors. Um, this is a, It's a cheat, but it's a cheat for, I hope, the right reasons. Uh, the NASDAQ ETF, it's NDQ is the code on the ASX. And this is a really, really simple way. Look, I think international investing is great and you should look at international investing. But if you're not going to or you don't want to or you simply want to add your ASX portfolio simply, um, the NASDAQ 100 ETF tracks the 100 largest non-financial companies 
on the NASDAQ exchange, which is one of the two US exchanges. It's the home of every significant tech company you can think of effectively. Um, Amazon, Apple, Google, I own some of those own Apple, Amazon and uh, Google to get that out of the way. Uh, Facebook, uh, NVIDIA, uh, you know, literally take your pick. This is the home of tech. And there's a couple of things here, or a few things here. Firstly, I think international diversification is really important. You want to have exposure to some stuff outside Australia. I think that's it's just common sense portfolio management. I think you also want to have currency diversification. And you probably want to have industry diversification. And while we have some decent tech companies here in Australia, they tend to be pretty niche. We've got about 84,000 buy now, pay later companies, last I checked, uh, and a couple of uh, medical device companies and a couple of other bits and pieces. We don't have anything like the social media brands or the e-commerce juggernauts, despite the Kogan of the world. Um, the Amazons, Mercado Libre, Shopify listed in the US. I own share in those two, uh, shares in those two companies as well. Apologies for doing this, by the way. I mention that every time, but I'd rather over disclose than under. So I want our listeners to know um, what I own and why I'm talking about them. Um, if you think about the, some of the, the big social, the, the big consumer brands in the US, uh, these are the sort of Apple. I mean, think about Apple, the juggernaut that that, that is Apple. Um, it makes a whole lot of sense. Even though we have some of those companies and those sort of sectors here, you're getting the very, very biggest and best in the world. And I think I've used the line before. It sounds like a marketing line, which I don't love, but it's also nicely encapsulates it. These are the companies that are inventing the future, quite literally inventing the future. We talked about innovation before. Um, if the metaverse becomes a thing, Facebook's going to be all over it. Uh, when the next wearable device comes out, Apple's probably going to have its brand on it. It's probably going to sell for $2,500 and people are going to grab it and droves. They love the hell out of this stuff. Tesla, right? I mean, Tesla. Um, so I think the NASDAQ ETF is a really, really great way to get one-click access to massive numbers of great US businesses with really, really bright futures. Um, you get a lot of diversification benefit for free. Even if it wasn't diversified, I'd still buy it because I, I like what, it, what the, the ETF represents. Um, but I think it's one of those things. If you think tech is going to continue to grow and become a bigger and bigger part of our lives, um, and I think you're crazy if you don't because I think that's almost certain, and you think that the big guys are going to keep getting bigger, and by the way, even if they don't, the NASDAQ is an ETF based on an index. So if the little companies start to beat the big companies, they're going to be on the ETF index anyway, so you get them one way or the other. I think it's a really, really great way to get um, especially great, great businesses uh, that are literally doing great things in, in 20 years' time. I expect this group of companies will be larger as a proportion of not only the market but the economy than they are today. And I reckon that makes perfect sense to at least allocate some of your portfolio to the NASDAQ 100 ETF. Oh, such a good idea. And the reason that I'm endorsing this pretty strongly is you have suggested that our guys might already own this, but they own it much less than you might imagine. Okay. So possibly the most. Get out there, people. Yeah, the, the piece of data <laughs> that I give people that shocks the most mm, is the mm. most bought ETF right. on NABTRADE right. is ASX 200. And oh, then the yeah. next most bought is ASX 200. And then the next most bought is ASX 200. <laughs> and then it may be S&P 500. And then right, it might right. be sort of some obscure crypto thing. But it's there's not a really strong appetite in ETFs for international yeah. and for something specific like the NASDAQ. It is much less prevalent than people anticipate. And I get questioned by journalists all the time, like, that can't be right. And I'm like, look, I've, I've got the numbers. <laughs> Pretty sure yeah. they're correct. It just, it's, there's a really strong desire for people to build their wealth on the ASX and yeah. they are still taking some time to go offshore, although I will say Tesla is now between number 11 and number 15, depending on the day, in our most held stocks. So wow, nice. that okay. one, 
That yeah. one's love no, nobody's business, mm-hmm. but the broader index and the companies mm-hmm. in it are not bought and held as much as you would imagine. So there you go. Think about it, people. Uh, I really would. And so, you know, because it's, it's a one-click thing too, by the way. So even if you don't know which companies you want, if uh, I don't think it takes too much imagination to believe that the combinations of the companies I've just mentioned are likely to be pretty dominant in, in 5, 10, 15, 20 years' time. Yeah, I think everyone understands that. And maybe it takes the anxiety out of choosing one. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Just yeah, choose yeah. all of them. Yeah. Choose all of them. Ready-made portfolio of the best tech companies in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Done. Problem solved. Mm-hmm. Tell me about number four. Number four is an unusual one and very much a, a big difference what I've just talked about. We're going all over the place now. I'm going to a to an insurance company. How exciting is that? Um, but it's actually a specific type of company. It's a health insurer and the company is NIB. Now, uh, the old Newcastle something, something, insurance something, uh, started as an insurance business for the BHP Steelworks in Newcastle, believe it or not, many decades ago, uh, is now about a 9.3% market share in the health insurance industry and is doing a really, really nice job of making the best of a tough industry. So I'm going to tell you why it's a crap industry, then I'm going to tell you why you should buy the shares and stick with me through the whole journey because it's worth it. I apologize if I just said the word I shouldn't say. I will edit that out later. Um, the uh, it's, it's a tough industry uh, because it's very um, saturated. Everyone who wants health insurance has got it or can get it. So you're not going to get a lot of growth in policies. Maybe around the edges you get a bit of growth in population. Maybe a couple of people say, well, I'd like to choose my own doctor. So you get a bit of growth there, but it's not much growth. On top of that, the health minister gets to decide how much of, a, of a, a policy premium increase you can pass on as an insurer. And they get to decide that because that's the condition of the government effectively co-funding the, the premium. You, you'll know that uh, the government kicks in, I think it's 30% of the health insurance premium. And basically as a condition, they get to set how much the insurers can charge. So you've got a situation where the policy numbers aren't growing quickly. The health minister has every incentive to not pass on big increases because they've got to stand up there every year and say, I have approved NIB or Medibank or HCF to pass on a 3.8% price increase. And every year someone says, but inflation is only 1%. And then we have that conversation about you know who's profiteering and why the health minister is approving it. So if you're a health minister, it's the thing you really don't want to do. So that's going to keep premiums down which makes it a tough industry to make money in. NIB has done a really, really, really fantastic job of marketing itself as an option for particularly younger people, but people in general, and has taken market share almost every single year, slowly but steadily, just little nibbles, little nibbles of market share, getting bigger and bigger and bigger over time. And that's been great for its its local business. Uh, it's a, a profitable insurance business. They do a really good job of it. Uh, and so they are making the best of a tough category. And that's a really nice and important thing to do. It's a cash cow business for them. What I really like about NOB is actually not that business at all. It's the fact that Mark Fitzgibbon, who I think is the most underrated CEO on the ASX, not necessarily the best, but the most underrated CEO on the ASX, has basically said, you know what, we're going to make a lot of cash out of this insurance business. But when we do, let's not play out back into more Australian health insurance because we know this is a tough industry to be and we'll grow where we can. But we'll go and put that money into other things. And those other things so far have been things like, and this is a, <laughs> it's a terrible time you're talking about it, but things like they bought a New Zealand insurer. They, have, they, they uh, provide health insurance for incoming workers on working holiday visas or just simply uh, 457 visas and the like. They provide health insurance for incoming students who come to study in Australia. And they started or bought a travel insurance business. Now, those last three have not been great businesses in 2020 and 2021 uh, because not a lot of people have been crossing borders. But as that business continues to grow, as the world starts to get back to normal and eventually gets back to completely normal and then grows from there, these are really great 
small businesses that have got lots of growth potential, they're not regulated when it comes to the premiums they can charge. So they actually get to basically take regulated return money, profits, and redeploy those into less regulated or unregulated areas where they can actually make more money for the policies they sell. And so it's a really, really smart way of utilizing a cash cow operation, turning that money into uh, uh, putting it to a, to a better use and continuing to grow. They continue to take little bets. They're doing white label insurance. They power Qantas's health insurance, for example, and I think it's Suncorp's health insurance. Um, they will continue to try They try medical tourism for a while. It died, so they closed down. They're going to start something else. Um, they're making those lots of little bets to try and find ways of growing their business. They're going to digital health insurance. Um, Mark Pitzkiewicz recently talked about the fact they're going to launch a membership program that actually has not insur- no insurance at all. It's, it's, it's a health program for people who want to be, you know, improve their health, but it actually, doesn't actually offer an insurance option. It's literally just that, that, that bit of software, that, that kit or that app that helps people look after their health better. So it's going to continue to find ways of moving outside that core business and grow profits along the way. One of the best management teams in the business, uh, I really like NIB. The code is NHF on the ASX. That's a really interesting one. Um, we, for anyone who attends CSO, CEO Connect, ASX CEO Connect, uh, these companies do get their CEOs up to talk to retail investors. Hmm. It's not an institutional event. It is absolutely for retail investors. Nice. And it's when CEOs put their you know, there's slides up that they'd ordinarily do for an investor presentation at a level that you kind of can consume really easily. It's mm-hmm. very tangible. And NRB did one of the best I've seen. It was really fantastic. It was a couple of years ago because it was in person. So I know it was a couple of years ago. <laughs> We're dating ASX. ourselves, Gemma. We're dating yeah, ourselves. Yeah, yeah, God. Um, it was in the uh, auditorium at the ASX building in Sydney. But mm. They did a fabulous job of clearly articulating their strategy and their vision and how the company was performing. And it's a great event if you can attend online and you can also go on the ASX uh, website and see the recordings of the ones that are done via by webinar now. But NIB was the one that I remember. I think best of all the ones I've seen, I've probably seen 200 of them uh, because there are six or seven CEOs at each event. Uh, They did a great job. It's a great idea. Tell that's me about awesome. your last one. Tell me what you uh, thought. I, I, I don't do this, bro. I've got a really quick plug, mate, for something that's free and your listeners can jump onto. When you finish the NAB Trade podcast, it's always should be the first one you listen to. <laughs> uh, but uh, but check out, if I mentioned a podcast I do called The Good Oil, um, and, I, and the reason I mentioned that, mate, is because um, you mentioned interviewing CEOs just reminded me that I'd actually talked to Kate Morris from Adore, Rosalind Kogan from Kogan, and also Mark Fitzgibbon from NIB on that podcast. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't planned that way, but given you mentioned it, if if your listeners do want to hear a little bit more, um, I don't want to drag them away from this podcast at, at all. But um, if they're keen to find a, a little bit more out about about those those companies and hear from those people, um, that might be useful as well if they if they want to have a, a look at something else. And it's free free podcast. So I think that's a fantastic want. one. And if you're anything like me and you love podcasts, you always want to hear about more to listen mm-hmm. to. It's exciting if you've got some travel coming up or an opportunity to uh, to do a bit more listening and to hear from the CEOs live and talking to someone like you that's awesome anyway thank you thank you for me to do that last one on my list is one that's also been through some tough times recently but i think is a very good risk reward proposition is treasury wine estates now this is the company behind uh, penfolds lindemans wins a whole lot of other brands as well but they're the major ones uh i, I, have, a, I have a passing affinity with the company's brand so i, I might say I've, I've occasionally imbibed uh, and not only are they good wines, but it's a really profitable business and with a really strong strategy. The opportunity, I think, comes for investors now, though, because 
they've been effectively kicked out of China with the ongoing trade war between uh, well, the geopolitical argument between Australia and China that's uh, in, in, the, in the guise of a trade war. Uh, the tariffs on wines are 200 and something percent. And so clearly what was already expensive wine at the top end of the of the treasury portfolio just is not getting sold into China, literally because the price is high and also because the reality is um, the Chinese people and the buyers know that we're having a, a spat with Australia. And so they're not going to bring hold of Australian wines and annoy the Chinese government. So the, the share price fell on that news and, and reasonably so too, except that that effectively means that the current price, you're getting the other businesses at a fair price in my view, and this potential big upside if and when, I think it's going to be when, but I might be wrong, if and when Australian wines do start to filter back into China, we were growing wine exports to China at 40% per year before the ban. 20% growth in volume and 20% growth in price. So we were selling them more wine and we're selling them more expensive wine. And my best guess is that returns in some way, shape or form. So you're getting the business today, the effect was effectively an Australian, US and European focused business at what I think is a fair price. It's not super cheap, but it's not expensive. Um, and you're getting the free option of the growth in China if and when that volume returns. And I just think it's remarkably unlikely that we never ever sell Australian wine in China again. Now, if it takes 20 years, that's close enough to never. But if it's done in the next few years and you own the shares and they keep executing well in the rest of the world, then that China growth is a big upside. Now, they're also running a really nice strategy. So wine generally is a terrible business. You have to grow the grapes, harvest the grapes, process the wine, store the wine, bottle the wine, store it again, try and sell it. It's a lot of cost and, and often years of effort before you finally sell a bottle. And if you're selling a $5 bottle of wine that costs you, you know, $3 to make, uh, you're not making a lot of money. And so that's a really tough business if you're in the mass market wines. Treasury have done things they call mastige, which is a combination of mass market and prestige. I hate those words, but you know that's what they call it. The, the most exciting part of the business is the top end. So if you're a, if you're a wine drinker, if you're a red wine drinker, you know the price of Grange or uh, bin 489 or sorry, 4, uh, was it? Don't know three eight nine. Uh, it's three eight nine. I shouldn't be yeah. shouldn't be interrupting. Four oh seven. No, four oh seven is what I was trying to think of. Um, three eight nine. Been, been twenty. All that stuff. Anyway, you get the idea. They've been going up phenomenally in price. The price of a bottle of Rawson's Retreat has not changed in twenty years, and I know because I used to work in a bottle shop. Uh, but the price of these expensive wines has been going through the roof. Now, yes, those wines, you know, the vineyards will charge a little bit more for the better wines. So yes, that costs a bit more. Yes, you store it for a little bit longer in barrels than in bottles. So yes, there's more cost there. But the increase in cost is massively disproportionate to the increase in the price you can sell them for. So you're not selling a $5 bottle of wine, you're selling a $100 bottle of wine. And yeah, maybe it costs you $15 to produce rather than $3, but the upside you can tell is really, really meaningful. And they've done a fantastic job of taking their that, that upmarket range further and further upmarket. As I mentioned before, the Chinese growth of 20% volume and 20% price is exactly an example of that. Um, I think Treasury is done, doing a really good job of executing on a, on, a, on a difficult business in a very clever way. I think the shares are, as I said, they're not super cheap right now if you ex exclude the China opportunity, and you probably should because you don't want to be putting value in there for something that may not eventuate. But I think you're getting a really high-quality business, super recognizable brands, great brand value in those brands, and, and they're getting full value for that, plus the opportunity of the upside in China when, I think, but I should say if, um, that that sales opportunity returns and if and when it does you will see the share price move meaningfully so you're getting you're getting paid well to, to buy the shares today and you're getting offered even more i think in the long term oh that's such an interesting one because we do get questions about treasury wine estate fewer than we used to but it yes. was 
It was one that people really, uh, that Natu milk, that they love some time <laughs> yeah, ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They want to know when when things are going to turn mm-hmm. around. They want to know if it's dead in the water and, uh, you yeah. know, and they need to leave it behind or if it's time to get back on board. And we have seen volumes fall quite a lot in the stock. You know, there used to be nibbles, but the nibbles have gone away. So it'll put it back on people's radar, something to think about. And by the way, if you're if you're bored of a certain stock, that's probably a good opportunity to have a look and think maybe there's some value there, right? Because we know that in the short term, share prices move for a whole lots of reasons and often it's sentiment. And so if you've got a lot of people who love the heck out of a particular company, that means everyone's probably buying it and that's going to be really good for the share price in the short term, right? Momentum does that to, to a share price. Now, you can't know when it's going to stop, when it's going to turn around. The flip side is also true. And to your point, Gemma, when, when everyone stopped talking about it because it's boring and yesterday's stock and no one cares anymore, you can reasonably assume there's not a lot of sentiment left in that in that share price. And so, well, I'm not a, I'm not a value investor per se. Um, if I think the future is every bit as bright, but yeah, look, nothing's happened for 12 months. The shares have gone nowhere. Everyone's bored of it, walked away, got sick of it. That's, you know, if the, the bit of contrarian streaking me says, that's something I want to be interested. That's something I want to look around and say, everyone's leaving it for dead. Maybe there's some opportunity there that I'm missing. Um, well, the other people are missing, I should say. Um, I think that is, that is to me, a good sign that you're not overpaying for a company and given the long-term potential for it, that's what I think makes it particularly an attractive opportunity. But you have to be, any of these stocks, any stock at all, you've got to be patient, right? You can look at, Tesla went nowhere, literally nowhere for five years straight. The shares, I can't remember the years now, but over a five-year period, shares literally finished the five years where they started the five years. And in the subsequent 12 or 18 months, they went up something stupid like 50-fold or something. And it was kind of like you, know, you had to be really patient and endure a lot of boredom and a lot of doomsayers, a lot of everything else to actually stay around long enough for that benefit. I'm not saying hold everything forever just because. That would be equally silly. But don't sell a stock just because you're bored or just because the shares are going nowhere, in, in quotes. Um, if, if the value is there, if the business is attractive enough, again, check out the Tesla share price chart if you don't believe me. Even Amazon went nowhere for, I think I looked at a five-year chart and for 24, 28 months of that period, they went nowhere. But they had two really significant moves. And you know, if you try to time your purchase, maybe you got it right, maybe you got it wrong. If you just sat there and went, let's go nowhere, but I like the business, I like the long-term potential, you were rewarded just by hanging around. And that's often the case if you buy quality companies. Scott, that is a beautiful note to end on for people who are facing into 2022, the challenge of investing in a market where maybe the easy money's been made and maybe you're going to have to hang around a while and deal with a few ups and downs, but much excitement and some great ideas if you're not sure where to start. Scott, also... So you've mentioned your podcast, which is awesome. And I think people who listen to podcasts want to hear podcasts. So it's fantastic (laughs) and people love to listen to it. Your brand, Motley Fool brand, is pretty much unavoidable, to be honest with you. (laughs) Don't mean to be unkind. That's a polite way of putting it. But but your emails are great. You put out some awesome content. I was going to mention the podcast, but you do video stuff and all sorts of other things. Where do people find you? You can find me on all the socials, um, on Twitter and Instagram. I'm TMF, which is the Motley Fool, TMF Scott P. Uh, I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash Scott Phillips Money. Um, the Motley Fool has corporate accounts as well. Uh, our YouTube channel is the Motley Fool Australia. So just go to YouTube and type in the Motley Fool Australia and you can find it there. Um, all over the place, uh, media appearances and bits and pieces as well as, as do you, Gemma. I, I'm um, privileged to follow you around on some of these things and, uh, and share some of the same airspace you do. Uh, but yeah, it, it, all, yeah, as you say, hard, hard to miss, uh, but that's probably a good place to start. The joy of it is getting access to uh, to the fascinating things that you're saying. Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation, Gemma. 
As always, thank you so much for listening also. We love hearing from you. We receive fantastic feedback. That's how we know that Scott's so popular. We love getting your questions. Please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.